Lionel Productions. Praxis Pedagogy exists to position our teaching and learning practice within different methodologies. We want to construct a guild of educators dedicated to designing a difference in our own teaching and learning and in our students' experience. One. Hey everybody, welcome back to Praxis Pedagogy Podcast. It's been a minute since we've uh, had an episode out and uh, I am, you know, busily working in the bat cave, if you could call it that, but uh, it is it is exciting for me to be here with my guest for episode 83. This is Corbin uh, and I'm going to I'm going to ask you Corbin to introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your background before we get into the conversation today. Uh, yeah. Hi, Tim. Uh, thank you for having me. Um, my name is Corbin Benita. Uh, I work as a curriculum and instructional designer um, for right currently right now out of the trade industry, actually for an apparel company. But I also assist with the overall operation of a vegan Vietnamese restaurant. So that's that's my primary job. Um, I've worked as a chef instructor for oh, seems like a long time, maybe like eight nine years, um, working in different levels of education from uh, post-secondary to adults um, and working specifically within the trade of culinary. And I've done a few pastry uh, pastry classes here and there. So yeah, that's, that's kind of my background. I transitioned from, you know, student-facing instruction to more curriculum and instructional design and uh, why I, I think I, Sally, Dr. Sally Vinden got me to, to speak on the show here. Yeah, we are very excited that uh, Dr. Vinden pointed uh, me in this direction to to reach out and connect with you, and and, and it's been a, it's been a journey even trying to get this uh, this situation set up where we could have time to meet. But I'm I'm glad that we are here. So Corbin, um, culinary is close to my heart. My my favorite uncle was a Red Seal chef, and uh, it took him all over the world, and uh, he talked me out of going into culinary which I'm not sure is good or bad, but he did it anyway. Um, and I've had a few culinary people on the show over the, the two and a bit years that we've been doing this, but I'm, I'm curious to know what first got you interested in the culinary trade? Uh, it came as almost a, I, I think the, what got me into culinary was this idea of creating something tangible. Um, I was, when I was in high school, I started when I was quite young, probably like 14, 15. Um, and I was in a high school program uh, known as the IB program, which is sort of like a advanced placement thing. Um, and the problem with IB is that it's like very theoretical and academia and what turned me off academia for a long while until I went back to graduate school was this like very like theoretical, like people just say stuff. And then everyone, if you're like part of this sort of group sort of disagree with you and it's like self-confirmation bias. Um, and what attracted me to culinary was a food is delicious. That's like where my head was at when I was 14, 15. Um, but this idea of like, it's proof, it's like proof of a skill. Um, and there's no, you know, there's no wash. It's not like you did it, you know, like it could have been better. It was just like, it was either right or it was wrong. And I found a lot of like solace in, in sort of that, 
um, that sort of like environment, um, you know, to the point about your, your uncle about getting out of culinary, there obviously is, uh, some sort of like, you know, workplace practices that come with sort of these kinds of lines of work that aren't necessarily probably conducive of the, of the best learning environment, but, um, there, there is something meaningful about creating something tangible and then something that can definitely, you know, impact your community in such a meaningful way. Like food. Um, I mean, I can tell this is more to do with my research, but yeah, the main, the main reason why I got into it is because like every single day I can get immediate gratification, seeing a plate come back into the kitchen, like empty. Uh, and that was sort of like that hit of like dopamine that I needed to like, uh, I think it's dopamine, right? That, that hip of like, that hit of like happiness to, to, you know, really inspire myself. And then obviously when I got older, it became more technical. I started to do cooler things. And then obviously I got obsessed with the technique and I'm a very science driven person. And it sort of just cascaded into, you know, I probably got out of the industry with 28. So probably 14 years of cooking, um, before I started to really get into like teaching. Um, and yeah, that's how I got into culinary. That's very cool. Um, so what, what possessed you to get into education and teaching your trade? It, uh, the idea of how do I phrase this? I, I was very, the, the best thing about this trade, um, and maybe it's practical with all trades is that, uh, you know, cooking, if you look at it as a form of linguistics is a very like universal language. Um, you know, probably at the same tier as music, like it doesn't matter what community you're in, the barriers of language are a lot lower because you can sit down at a table with someone and share a meal uh, and understand that person through that food, like the ingredients, their techniques or whatever. You can understand kind of where they're at. Um, I was very lucky in my career to have traveled as much as I have. Um, I traveled for practically about on and off for like nine years um, quite, quite regularly to different countries, uh, worked in the Philippines, worked in New Zealand, worked in Italy, um, worked in Toronto, a couple of places in the uh, U S um, done apprenticeships, you know, in a bunch of other countries, France and other where. Um, so yeah, like to, to have that sort of unique experience and then to share that with a group of young minded people, uh, who, who aspire to the same, like you would assume that they, they, they've tried other cultures and like for me to speak that language of sharing and giving and proving it through the medium of, or of the technique, uh, was the main reason. Um, I think it's a lasting impression, right? If someone can like adapt your skill or to emulate you or to imitate you, and then they find their own form of autonomy through that you know, them recreating and they find their own forms of expression. That's like the most meaningful thing. And I sort of became addicted to that, which eventually led to the science of education. Um, and that's where I kind of landed in curriculum and instruction, which is a lot more, you know, technical, um, comparatively to say like student facing pedagogy. Right. Um, so like just because of my background, um, of technique driven and, and science, um, I wanted to share, kind of these like beyond the mechanical of cooking, like, like the chemicals and, and why it all works. And then through that, find like that inspiration and, and like love for, for culture and anthropology. Uh, and that led to, you know, obviously sharing that with students and it's, it's a great position to be. And I think ultimately teachers, good ones, at least if they're willing to 
share knowledge, like kind of um, unconditionally, it, it, it means that they're ready to let it go. Um, and I, you know, I just felt like at that stage in my, like my career, I, you know, I didn't need to hold on to my techniques anymore. I was just happy to share it. That's very cool. I mean, at the beginning of that, I, I couldn't help but be reminded of something that I've heard from, from other culinary people, as well as my own uncle was that, uh, food just has this magnetic ability to, to build community. Right. And, um, you know, you can, you can have really, uh, extravagant, um, special meals all the way through to just like grandma's home cooking. And, and it just has this magnetic ability to draw people together and have community. And we see that happening in, in places that we go or, well, maybe in the last two years, maybe not so much, but, you know, people would congregate in the kitchen for no other reason, because it's, it's familiar ground, right? Like it's, it's community yeah. building area, right? Yeah. It's, it's just a place where, where people feel nurtured. Like, you know, when you, when you think about even like etymologically speaking or anthropological, anthropologically speaking, the restaurant, like a place of gathering and society, I mean, literally, I mean, from the French, it means the restorative house. Um, so I think it's just always culturally represented, um, the kitchen or, or the, or, you know, the kitchen or the, or the restaurant is always just culturally represented, like a place to share stories, um, a place to connect a place to, you know, live effectively right kind of it was like your sense of reprieve right so very cool so what what drew you into doing a master's degree the master's degree came from a long-standing observation of particular language used around education and training now like often in apprenticeships we use this term called training which is you know different than education because training is more implied that we have to like acquire say cognitive or physical skills to complete a task right or like to, to increase proficiency in something whilst education is a little bit more holistic right it's like an educated person is one who can like philosophize life, right? Like sort of how academia, academics use that term, right? And I got drawn into it because I was working as a, um, an, a as a mentor for the uh, Industry Training Authority, the ITA. Um, and then you just notice a lot of the language in the ITA manuals sort of connote this idea that those who work in trades like don't aspire for higher education. Um, because it's like, oh, we're just going to train them to get the job, the competencies that lay are, that are laid out to get, you know, your professional cook one, two, three, baker cook one, two, three, or whatever trade is sort of done in this very like linear progression when, and what happens is that when the bar is set at this sort of, you know, I don't want to use the term lower, but at this like very like curated level of, uh, training it doesn't always apply to the industry because cooks need to know the science of how food works to cook like, you know, live versus just like learning a physical action, like cut an onion. I'm not saying that cutting an onion is not important or learning how to cut an onion is not important. It's, I just felt that the, that the trades education was just too low for like what was actually required to be successful. Um, so that inspired me to really dive into this sort of like, 
Like, why are we using words like this? Like, how come the curriculum in terms of competency level is so low? What happens? What what happens to the entire workforce if they're being trained to only this level? And I thought the master's degree was the right option to do that. And I predicated all my research, um, practically the, the two years, just strictly looking at um yeah, effectively like language that's been used in, in culinary uh, and trades in general, but mostly culinary that has effectively, I, I feel, and I hope I've proven that has like almost socially disenfranchised uh, a lot of the workers when they come out of their education program. Um, and, you know, I, I, I fight for, um, you know, in my teaching and in my pedagogy with my students, I, I always aspire to, to take it to a, to another level beyond just the physical competencies of cutting an onion or like whisking a vinaigrette, you know, we, we kind of learn about the romance and the, and the, you know, the culture, the anthropological meanings of food. Um, and then I, I, I feel like that is the best way to teach culinary um, because of, you know, many reasons when young cooks go out into industry, they'll, um, they'll learn the physical skills at work. Don't like, you know, we don't need to learn those in school. They'll, they'll get more than enough time to, to cut onions um, at work. Um, so that's what drew me to the masters. Yeah. It's interesting. There's a bunch of, bunch of things in there I want to talk on, but it's, um, it's interesting to me that uh, what, what's, what was the student's response? Like when you're, when you're teaching this kind of in this approach that you have, it must be new to them in their, in, in what, and different than what they expected. How, how are they responding to that? I found it to be quite successful. So luckily I had the training through my teacher's training prior to be able to build, you know, formative assessment structures. Um, and I would give really, you know, candid, I would set up an environment, a learning environment that was very like open door, um, you know, like, you know, not, there, there is like a culture, there's like a pretty longstanding cultural hierarchy in kitchens of like the chef is sort of like, you know, this like, uh, like omnipotent God, effectively, you know, and like the, the, he or she oversees everything. And like, you always have to do it to this person's standard. Like I have standards, but I, I, I put myself on the level of, you know, someone learning and I would like try to understand where they're coming from. Um, you know, I took the approach that anyone who comes into my class has a, like a cultural story to share. Like there are technical limitations to some things that they do. And it's my job to obviously correct those. But for me to disqualify, you know, someone's experience and say, like, here's the prescriptive curriculum. Like we have to follow these like these like sort of benchmarks that, you know, either the school or the ITA gives us. I was like, no, it's like, what do you think this is? This is your interpretation of it. Let me show you how I let's compare and look at the techniques and how we get there. So it's kind of like a collective road building. I, I found a lot of success in it. Um, I've had like a lot of students show up on time, show up early, stay late. Um, you know, which from what I've heard from some of my other colleagues is not always the case. Uh, Cause sometimes culinary is, kind of just seen as like a, Oh, I have nothing else to do kind of program. So some people take it. Um, so I've had a lot of, you know, a lot of young people I felt inspired and, you know, uh, I'm just pointing over to my mantle right now in my apartment. I have like, you know, a lot of gift cards and cards from former students who kind of express that, you know, that sort of gratitude they feel from 
having this sort of like autonomy to express themselves and then me sort of just like curate or sort of like hone the techniques about their own self-expression to get to their own self-expression. Um, and I found to be quite su uh, successful in my, at, at, at the post-secondary level, I think about seven years teaching. Uh, uh, so yeah, there was, it was different for sure. They definitely didn't know how to react because they would come from one chef who was like, you know, maybe like this is the way. And then I just be like, Hey, what's up? Like, super chill. Um, <laughs> and, uh, but I think, I think, you know, they grew, they, they grew on them. Okay. Have you had any feedback from industry as to how your teaching methodology, <clears throat> pardon me, your teaching methodology and your approach has, um, fostered a different attitude in your students when they go out to industry? I've heard some feedback from some of my, um, I guess, colleagues who've, who've hired some of my students and they, the mo it's mostly like they're more adaptable um, because I just don't teach them in a very strict methodology. Like, for example, like I often don't teach things by the ITA curriculum standard per se. Like, for example, a big one is making hollandaise sauce. You would normally need a double boiler, all these things like that. Um, but I just sort of teach them how they'll do it in industry, which is like directly over the fire. Cause I told them like, if you ever, if you ever pull out a double boiler, like your chef will just get mad at you. You know what I mean? Like it's just not applicable anymore. Um, which yeah, like, which is great feedback because obviously their skill sets are not of the level of like a trained professional just yet, but they're still students obviously, but the willingness to be so okay with adapting the willingness to like understand that, um, you know, that there's more than one way to get there, um, just allows for easier teaching on their part too, because they're like, when, when my colleagues give the students instructions, they're not just dead set in one way. Like I might've showed them multiple ways to get there. Um, and then even if I didn't even show them the way they like it, they, they just sort of say like, Oh, okay, this is another way to do it. And they sort of put that tool in their tool belt, as opposed to sort of have this sort of like, not like initial rejection. Like I wasn't taught this way kind of thing that commonly exists in, uh, in education. So that's, that's probably the most feedback I've gotten. Well, it's really important feedback too, right? Because I know, I know when I was out in industry, I didn't get this when I was in, when I was in doing my technical training, cause I'm a plumber by trade and. And so I would go to school and they would teach me theory and, and teach me the, the reasons why behind why we did the things that we did and code and all that other stuff. But it was out, it wasn't until I was out in the field and even later into my apprenticeship that I was like, Oh, Corbin does it this way. Okay. But you know, journey person X did it the another way. And then sure journey person Y did it another completely different way. And so there wasn't one way to get to the end goal. There was many different paths and it wasn't until later on that I started realizing, <clears throat> okay, it's probably going to help me a lot. If I learn from all these different people, like you're teaching your students to be adaptable to, to create their own way of doing things. And, and that's okay. Like I don't have to be a blueprint of somebody else. Yeah. And, and food is so individual, right? Like the, the thing that separates food from, I think most other trades, uh, quite honestly, is that like we technically outside of like food, save HACCP, uh, kind of those, uh, those kind of regulations, like there's not, there's nothing really like, we don't have codes, you know what I mean? Like compared to like an electrician or a plumber, like we don't have to cook things to code, um, you know, outside of like the, the metrics of food safe. Um, 
So it's really interesting when curriculum tries to prescribe technique and tries to prescribe theory when it's so individual, like I would have a student from say France or a student from say China and the way they perceive an ingredient like chicken is like entirely different, like culturally. So it's like, who am I to say that the ITA or curriculum or, you know, the school's curriculum is like, this is the way it's like, they have a cultural interpretation of how chicken is cooked and, and, and vice versa. And then of course, like you get into some sort of more, you know, cultural arguments about like, why is the technique set based on this sort of Eurocentric, um, you know, Western style cooking comparatively to, you know, other cuisines that, you know, do things different ways because of like environment, et cetera. Right. So, um, yeah, like I just wanted to share that mindset, like kind of what I got when I was traveling that like, you know, the grandma I learned from in Italy who made pasta was different than the French chef, but neither way was wrong. Maybe there's a preferred way, but equipping your students with those tools was the right way to go. That's cool. Very cool. So you, you mentioned that uh, you were doing some research for your master's. Tell us a little bit about the, the research. Yeah. So the research was sort of predicated. So there's two, two facets of my research. One was this idea of language. Uh, so for example, uh, the, the, ITA or the, or the trade authority, um, like labeled cooking as a non-compulsory trade. Uh, and what that means is that a practitioner of, of this trade does not need licensure to practice the trade, like for example, or to be an indentured apprentice. So for example, an electrician would be registered as an apprentice. And then when they get their journey person, they can, uh, you know, get more, but cooking, anyone can do it. Right. Like, in fact, in, in my journey in curriculum and instruction, I've designed programs for foreign worker visas. So we would build education to get foreigners to come in to satisfy the labor shortage of, of the restaurant industry. And that's simply because it is labeled as a non-compulsory trade because there is no measurement of education required to cut the corresponding living wage is non-existent. Because, for example, an electrician who has their journey person's papers can demand, I don't know, I'm going to say like 35 bucks an hour. I, I don't know the data on that. But, you know, cooking, because it's non-compulsory, people will constantly try to get you for the lowest common denominator because they can just replace you with, say, a foreign worker. Um, because they're like your red seal, because it's non-compulsory, I effectively say it's meaningless. And I'm, I have two red seals. I have one in baking and I have one in, in cooking. And it's like, why did I even get these? Because it's, it's, there, there is no measure for it. Um, and I sort of examined that literature throughout sort of our sort of government documents and our school's curriculums. And I, I sometimes believe it's like kind of intentional to sort of create this boom of economic growth where, um, you know, food, unlike maybe some other trades is a necessary thing to live. So to satisfy the market, they've purposely done these things to keep up with like sort of the upkeep of like feeding people throughout society. And it became more prevalent to my second part of research was um, essentially the idea of like, uh, you know, the essential worker um, that came with COVID and, and the, what Sally Vinden got, uh, I guess, intrigued by enough for me to, to invite me onto your show was, you know, um, you know, not to say that like nurses and doctors obviously didn't work very hard during COVID, uh, the onset of COVID, but like cooks, 
you know, did too. Like everyone stayed home and we had to go to work and we didn't get any of the same recognition. Um, and essentially I wrote this paper called, are we essential or not? Um, about effectively food becoming so apolitical because it's necessary to live. And because of like how tech has sort of like mollified restaurants until sort of like a, you know, an online delivery app where you can get anything, anytime delivered to your house. How can you learn to appreciate it if it's so easy? Because appreciation for something like say appreciation of your education is only done after like years of study and proving your skill and you get this master's degree and you feel so rewarded for your hard work. But cooking has become so apolitical that people are just like, I'll just order whatever I want to my, to my door. How can you, how can you appreciate food if it's just that easy? Um, and, you know, I think it sets a dangerous precedence uh, in terms of like the social curriculum of the value of food. Um, because people can't even imagine food not showing up at their door when they want it, or to be able to go to a grocery store and not have it so beautifully laid out. Like every single apple is perfect at Whole Foods because we don't actually get to see the hard work that the farmers put in, um, you know, all the food that is sort of thrown away to make sure that that pile of apples you see at Whole Foods is like perfectly curated. Um, and I think by diminishing the social education of food, the value of food in society will eventually just disintegrate. And then as she leads added on with the non-compulsory status of cooks, it constantly devalues these people who've dedicated their lives to such an essential service. Um, and that's sort of the whole big tie-in of my research um, and why I fight for cook's rights, why I fight for, you know, people getting fair wages for, for their work uh, because cooking is difficult. Yeah. No kidding. No kidding. Um, what, what surprised you about your research as you were doing it and reading it and, and, bumping into what was emerging out of it? Um, what surprised me about it is, I mean, I, I don't want to say it was a surprise. I had an inclination because like, I guess I'm just like, I guess I could just be a little bit, uh, maybe I have a negative viewpoint in, in life when it comes to these things. But, you know, we, we kind of see like a very performative action when it comes to food. Um, the, the interesting aspect about food is that everyone believes they can cook to a degree because they probably have. And it leads to this sort of kind of constant dialogue about is food worth it at a restaurant? For example, like someone can go to a restaurant and order a burger and they may not be pleased with their burger for whatever reason. And they can say a comment like, Oh, like I can make this at home. And maybe that's true to an extent, but at the same time too, it's like, you're immediately devaluing this person's work and it, and it leads to multiple like sort of layers of, of kind of like rejection. So like, for example, I'm not saying that people can't complain if their food is poor. I'm just saying that it's like, you know, you can't disqualify the person working just because you got a bad experience either. Right. Cause there's like a cost associated with that. What I found was that people were just so willing to just sort of push food aside because they don't even think about it. Because what, what came to mind is that a lot of people's works now have to do with um, 
you know, they, they deal with more non-tangible things. Like they work in economics, they work in sort of like software or like, you know, marketing, like these concepts are very nebulous. Like they're very cognitive processes. Um, and then when you think about food, a lot of people just like, don't even know what a chicken looks like anymore. Like, like the animal chicken. I've actually had a few students who actually couldn't even identify the animal chicken. They knew what it looked like in the grocery store. And they knew what it looked like, like a chicken breast, but there's such a disconnection between, I guess, like our agricultural biosphere or, or the land, um, because the only way people interpret with food now is through like grocery stores or like third party delivery apps. What, what I found was just like, I just was like almost like amazed. It's like when you meet someone who doesn't know how to say swim. Like if you are like a swimmer and like, you know, it just it seems like such a natural skill to you and you finally meet someone. And I found that experience too. I, I've met people who are afraid to go to the grocery store um, because it's an overwhelming experience. So they often just order food online. Um, and you're just like, really? Like this is, you need this to like live. Yeah, like, <laughs> like quite literally, whether you appreciate food for its artistic and anthropological value or you just use it for like little sustenance, it's like, how can something so necessary for your survival be so just like so easily dismissed? Uh, and I found that as a very repeated pattern when talking to, you know, non-trade folk. Um, and yeah, it was probably the most surprising element of my research. And, you know, it only proves my point about this idea of like our cooks essential. And, um, because, you know, as I said, like no one, no one was short on food during COVID, like a lot of people, well, I shouldn't say that because I actually work as a food security manager for a nonprofit uh, organization. And there were a lot of folks who had less access to food. I'm speaking about a certain society of people working from home, I should say more accurately. Um, and it was just a lot it was, it was just amazing how quickly people were just willing to not really care about it when there are a lot of cooks, food service workers, whatever your position is, or trades workers in general, like sort of keeping like, you know, you know, our society going during that time. And, and yet on the news, and as I said, not to, not to diminish the work of doctors and nurses, like they, you know, they were, the, the pots were clanging just for them. Right. So it was it was an interesting experience for me working as a food security manager during that time. Um, and that's what inspired um, me for me to write that paper uh, was sort of to speak about my grievances about kind of this like weird sort of, you know, it's still kind of surreal. We're at sort of, or at the sort of like this like endemic part of, of COVID. And it's like the last two years has just been crazy. That's kind of the reason why I kind of left working in trades for now, because I just need a break. <laughs> Yeah. Well, I was going to ask you like with, with the research and how it's impacted you and surprised you and maybe even confirmed some things that you were already thinking, like how has, how, how has the last two years or two plus years of doing this master's journey? How, how has it affected you personally? Quite, quite a lot. Like, again, I was very fortunate to be in a group of very, well, I wouldn't say like-minded people. Like, you know, a lot of them are like typical academic people. So I may, I may not necessarily fall into that, that caveat, but there, there were, there was like an iron worker, uh, an electrician, um, who, you know, I was fortunate enough to, to speak to about these sort of theories about trade work. And at the time when I was working, doing the masters, I was working as that food security manager, you know, building boxes or, 
recovering food waste and making meals for those unhoused or, or, or youth who are experiencing, you know, socioeconomic barriers. Um, and, you know, it, it, it was interesting because it's like this work that I'm doing is quite literally essential. Like if I didn't show up to work, like these people didn't eat. Right. And it's like, how come I'm not seen as essential or no one even thinks about it. Right. Cause they can just order their food from, you know, X burger restaurant directly to their door or get pad Thai whenever they want. And yet, you know, for every unblemished apple that's at whole foods, there's a very blemished and destroyed apple that comes through my door and I have to do something with it or else it goes to waste. Um, and so I, not to say that I grew resentment, but I just became very tired between the research the demand of research at, at, during the program. And then also doing this work that was physically because cooking is very physical when you're cooking for 300 people a day. Um, and then like, obviously the cognitive and emotional kind of environment as well. Um, so it led me to kind of just take a step back, figure out what I wanted. Um, again, write these papers, speak to people like Dr. Sally Vinden about kind of these things or keep on talking about this sort of, idea about like essential trades and the beauty of, of pedagogy, like through, through trades or having a meaningful education through trades. Um, and eventually I was just like, okay, like, I feel like I'm talking, but society just isn't ready. To, like it's not maybe not be there right now. <laughs> so I kind of just took a step out and was like, I'm going to come back maybe when, and maybe when things are more recovered and people are, or when people start realizing when the price of food goes up as it, as you know, recent world events will lead to, um, you know, people will start appreciating cooking more. So you, you've done a master's, you've written your paper. This, this has obviously had a, a significant impact on you and, and your perspective and, and your teaching practice and, and even your, your curriculum and uh, building and, and designing. And, and that's all awesome. What, what do you want to see uh, as an outcome from your paper as, as more people bump into you and maybe it, more people read the thesis that you wrote? Uh, what's, what's, your, what's your hope for people? I mean, like, you know, going back to the beginning, like, like food is a very high level of language. You know, it is the place that people congregate from, right? So like, I just want people to value food and those who practice it of the same level. Right. Uh, it's like, for example, um, how do I say this? For example, yeah. Like I, I, I want a society that I would hope for a society. Like I've had the opportunity to work in other countries where tipping is not a thing because tipping has just became something common in the restaurant industry uh, where you know, it is like, it's very like unfair per se. Like for, for example, like people who work in food service have to perform perfectly at their job to get their living wage because their living wage is lower. So they were, so businesses rely on the tips to sort of make up that difference, but it's like to get your tip, your service has to be perfect. Now I'm not saying that people deserve bad service, but I'm saying that we should have a living wage that covers that and tip is extra. Right. Because like, for example, in my current job, like I don't have to perform my best and I still get my salary. Right. Um, but a lot of people in food service, they have to perform perfectly every day 
or else they just don't make their ends meet. And I think that's because people don't value food because everyone can say like, oh, I didn't like this or like I could do a better version at home when in actuality they can't. Um, but yet they, they have this like sort of misplaced arrogance about it because they may have cooked eggs once and they like it the way they do. Um, <laughs> so I'm hoping that, you know, trades, I mean, not trades, that culinary, you know, despite obviously what can happen economically by it, but like becomes a little bit more compulsory, like the education becomes more compulsory. Therefore, cooks can sort of stand together and be like, hey, like I've gone to this training this is the value of my work as opposed to someone questioning why a loaf of bread now costs $7 at an artisanal bakery versus at, you know, a, uh, let's say a superstore where it costs $2. So it's like, how can anyone get the value of their work when there's always a cheaper comparative? Um, and I'm hoping that my research and the people I, I teach and the people I encounter, you know, begin to have these conversations about food isn't apolitical. It's like a, it's a, it's a long-standing point of discussion, and it needs to be talked about more, uh, or else it'll just be labeled as non-compulsory and eventually just fade away. Um, and I, that I would hate that to happen. I like that term. Food is not apolitical. I love, I love that term. Good. Well, Corbin, it's it's been a joy to have you on the show. I'm thinking that I I might I might invite you back for a round two. Yeah, um, I talk a lot. Be... I'm sorry, <laughs> no, dude. It's all good. Yeah, yeah I mean, it, it's uh, I mean, it's what podcasts are all about. Yeah. Um, but uh, I'm I'm curious to know uh, when when you're having just you know, one of those days, right? Mm -hmm. And you come home, what do you make for yourself? It's really funny because like people think that I like have this like amazing repertoire of things to eat at home. Like I like literally quickly eat an apple over the sink. And that's like, that's kind of like my meal. I've been, I've been doing better now, now that I'm not working in industry or, or teaching, but like back when in my restaurant days, I was either always at work tasting things or, uh, yeah. Like when I'm at home, I'm quickly jetting out the door and drinking a, a black coffee and, uh, and an apple super quickly. And that's, that's my meal for the next six hours. Um, so yeah, I mean, I wish I had a more romantic answer for you. Like, Oh, I, no, I cook this beautiful food, but no, it's quite, it's quite simple. No, I, I find it quite interesting that most people are just most, most people who are really good at cooking, whether they're in the actual profession or not, that they're very much just mac and cheese, <laughs> some bologna yeah. sandwich, just something really just yeah. off, Katie, off the radar, right? Katie is the cornerstone of society. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. It's how we got exactly. here. Exactly. What's your, uh, if, if you're to go out, if you go out to a restaurant, what do you, what do you like to eat? What do you, what's your favorite? So my background, I guess I have a natural affinity towards, so there's two, like some Filipino by descent. So like, obviously there's like a cultural appreciation for things I ate growing up. So, you know, Culinaria is a restaurant in Vancouver that I, I, I frequent, or I would say, yeah, I, I go to quite often to eat good Filipino food, but like my training is in sort of modern Italian cuisine. Um, so like I have a natural sort of like inclination to try like kind of very like clean Italian flavors. Um, not so much like, you know, there's different perception. Like a lot of people in Vancouver believe like, I, I shouldn't generalize, but um, a, a lot of Italian restaurants here just offer like a different assortments of pasta per se. And like pasta is just sort of like obviously one facet 
of, of Italian cuisine. Um, so I try to, I try to do the other things like, you know, the boiled meats and, and, and other things, but yeah, just, I guess Italian is where, is where I, I find myself eating most of the food. Wow. That's cool. Yeah. That's cool. Very good. All right. Well, Corbin, thanks again so much for being on the show. Really appreciate it. And like I said, we're going to have you back for, for round two. Right. And, um, cause we want to, we want to dig into your, your research a bit more and, and, uh, ask you more about your curriculum design and, and yeah. how that's, uh, impacting what you do. Yeah. So thanks again for taking the time. Oh, thank you for having me, Tim. I appreciate it.